Hello. Today I chat with Malin Yin, who is a uh, GP at the Operator Collective, and this this VC fund with 140 million bucks of assets under management. And man, they do their LPs are all it's 90% women, 40% people of color. They're all these like amazing women operators who just don't get any of the um the limelight and the spotlight and so we have this weird kind of founder vc ecosystem which is very kind of male generally more male driven but actually the people who are like building and running these companies are a lot of them are kind of you know doing the back of house kind of gendered women work or whatever you want to call it and um and malun has just uh, malin has just taken uh, 200 of them and made this awesome operator collective of them and, and and investing in new startups. So I think that she's doing a great, it's cool to learn from her about, yeah, how kind of, I mean, there's a lot of future VC stuff here around how collectives work. There's a lot of um, kind of future of startup stuff here around how startups are built and, and, and grow and how operations is a crucial piece of that. Um, and yeah, I think it's a cool just piece also around just, you know, the future of kind of diversity in venture capital and how, uh, how Operator Collective is really, it seems like they're doing a good job of that. So just, <laughs> it, it was a good conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Um, yeah, and hope you're well. Thanks. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. The century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world, and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. So, Malin, thanks for being on the show, and welcome. Um, thank you so much, Reese, for having me. It's cool. It's cool. It's I like it when people um, have a life well lived, you know, where <laughs> you're like, you've done things before, and you're like, hey, I did this one thing, and it was cool, and I did this other thing, and it was cool. And How does it feel to be doing kind of your fourth thing, you know? Yeah. And what's interesting about that is if you looked at it, there was no rhyme or reason to where I ended up. But when you step back and you look at it, everything that I did to this point was actually prep to be able to do this thing that I never thought I would be doing, which is starting a venture fund, um, you know, with now $140 million under management. Because am I, I, I may be the only uh, VC you've, in, uh, you've, you've interviewed that started out as an IP patent attorney. Totally. Yeah. How did you um like and, and how how did your either how did the IP patent attorneyness or how did the other jobs that you've done how did they um lead you to to doing what you're doing with Operator Collective? Yeah. Um. Good question. Because there's not a natural natural path there. So when I was I was at Cisco when I was a VP at Cisco, and I when I was promoted to the chief IP counsel um, in charge of patents and all intellectual property, there were so few women in that position. This was in 2005 that there was actually a front page story in legal press above the fold about the fact that I had gotten this position, and as a result of this. The reporter asked me, like, how many other women are in this position? And there were um, six others. That's it, um, who were chief patent counsels. And I realized, I'm like, well, we don't even know each other. We had to, I had to sit there and be like, oh, there's this person and this person. And so we actually started to just get together for lunch. And it became a nonprofit, 5,000, you know, 
5,000 members in 22 chapters of the around the world. It continues today. And, um, and, and that's kind of how it started, which is we didn't really know, but there were so few of us. It's like, at least we should know each other. Um, and so that is how I inadvertently, unintentionally started my first company, which was the nonprofit, and ran that on the side um, as a, the CEO of that and, um, and really learned how to build communities. And then the second one, so I was, when I was chief patent counsel, there was a problem with something called patent trolls. If you were familiar with them, yeah, like non-practicing entities that would sue innovative companies, um, you know, you know, just to basically get money out of them. And so this was a problem that we needed to have solved in the industry. And so um, helped launch a, a company called RPX, which was essentially the anti-patent troll. So it was a patent risk reduction and insurance company. So also started an insurance company while I was there. And that was the one that was venture backed. And we took from zero to a hundred million in public in three years. Um, but in some ways I was such an outsider to venture. I didn't realize that that was unusual. Um, so even living here in the middle of the Silicon Valley, being part of a venture back company, I was so heads down in my work all the time, not, you know, out in the venture world that I didn't realize that. And the third one um, was Saster, which has was part of that from the early days and became COO of that and learned a ton because, you know, had a front seat to all these companies that are now public, but they were just two people who had just started this company. And back when this started and, you know, over 10 years ago, it was like, well, what does SaaS stand for? And it's like, why are you in, interested in SaaS? Like, how boring is that? It was very not cool and very not, you know, unsexy. And so, and so it, and, and with each one of these from the nonprofit chips to RPX, they all had strong community. Saster obviously has a large, um, a strong community. And that leads up to where I, where I am now, um, sort of. So if you weave together, you actually find some themes, but when you go through it, you're like, these all seem kind of random. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, and it's cool also to hear about, you know, I mean, the progress that you guys are doing with uh, with Operator Collective is so good. The goal here today is to understand, you know, Malin's perspective on kind of the future of VC and the, and also the changing face of VC and how operators are many of the people that kind of push tech companies forward. So we're just going to understand like how diversity in venture capital and how kind of these new collectives are forming and also how like operators run the show. Tell me like what role do all because I think everybody knows oh there's an engineer that like codes the app you know and they kind of get that but like what role does do operators play in startups yeah so when I started operator collective um, we had to define what an operator was because it wasn't really clear because there were in the VC world there were founders which is pretty clear what a founder is and there are VCs pretty clear what that is. And like, what are operators? And it's the people who are not the founders. They might be part of the early founding team, but they're not the founders, but they're the people who build, grow and scale up these companies. And so it can be early stage operators. It can be later stage, but what it is and what I did with operator collective, it's not just someone who does operations. It can be an operator can be someone who is the VP of engineering who has built and scaled up the engineering team. It is someone who runs product. And so it's a variety. And so when I started Operator Collective, what I realized, I was so heads down just working all the time. And that, and, you know, like a lot of the people in Operator Collective, which is mostly women, we're mostly women over the age of 40. And most of us have kids, which means that we just really, and then throw COVID in there. We barely have any free time to go, you know, hang out at some, you know, happy hour to try and figure out what we want to invest in and how to engage invest in, in venture. And so, but my aha moment and why I put together Operator Collective is that 
um, after we took um, uh, the venture back company private again, for the first time, I had a moment to say, hey, what do I want to do? And what I loved working with, I loved working with founders. I, you know, I had been a founder myself and I loved working with founders, loved helping them. Um, and so as soon as it became known that I was like, hey, I'm just looking to talk to anyone, a lot of VCs and founders were like, hey, will you talk to this company? Will you talk to this company? And because I had grown enterprise revenue from the ground up to essentially 300 million when we took the company private again, um, turns out you actually learn a few things along the way when you've done that. And not that many people have done it. And so when I sat down and talked to these founders who are you know, great and passionate, but most of them had not done quite that before. And so they would ask me all these questions and I would answer and they'd be like, wow, that's brilliant. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of second nature to me. And then that was my aha moment, which is because they have a different skill set and a background than I had. This is what my life is and that's what I live. And so then I realized, because I did not want to be a VC, because I thought the typical VC model is fairly broken. You don't really work as a team on things. It's really sole sort of somebody at, um, somebody who had I really respected who went to VC and then left again to go back to operating. He's a CEO of a um, public company now. I was like, why did you leave? He says, I'm so used to building a team and that's how I like to operate. But in some ways, um, VC and in private equity investing is like big game hunting. You go out during the day, you hunt, you slay something big, you bring it back, you brag around the table about it, and you want yours to be more successful than anyone else's. And so I was like, and, and, and in, in many ways, right, you're in competition with your very own partners, which just doesn't seem to optimize for best results. Now, it makes sense when you look at the venture model, why it works that way. But I was like, you know what, what I want to do is what if we could run this more like a company, which is that people who have their skill sets, we have people who are the investing team, we have the data and analytics team, we have the marketing team, and we all work together. There's not one company that's my company or your company. We want this to be more successful. We share across the board. And so, um, so, uh, so, but going back to your question is why did I, when I, when I put this together, what I realized was that the VC world largely revolves around VCs and founders, obviously two very important parts of the VC world. But operators were really kind of an afterthought. People like me who were had built up and scaled up these companies, but we're not the founders, so we're not in that natural sort of ecosystem. And also it's not a part of our natural networks. I was like, but but they all realized, like as they did when you know my aha moment was like, oh, they actually want to talk to people like me. They just don't know people like me because our networks don't intersect. So if I could put together a fund that one works as a team because that's what I think optimizes for best results, and two could bring in all these very busy operators who were like me, didn't really have a lot of free time to go figure out how to navigate the venture ecosystem, but do it on terms that worked for those operators, then we could put together a very successful fund because those founders would then have access to these operators as needed. And we could find a way to expand wealth creation and opportunity in the venture world to bring in these ultra talented operators who otherwise were not you were not participating and did not have the opportunity to participate in venture. And so the first fund, it was the first time I was a GP, um, four years ago when we launched it, um, you know, a lot of skepticism, which is like, what, what are you doing? You've never raised a fund before. Um, I had been the operating partner at Saster fund, but had not been a GP. Um, and I did not have, was not one of these super angels uh, or did not have the net worth either to have it be a super angel who had like a hundred different investments, et cetera. And so at the beginning we thought everyone's like, oh, you'll be able to raise like five or $10 million from people that, you know, and we ended up raising, um, over $50 million. And not just operator LPs who are like these badass, incredible operators um, 
and uh, but also from institutional investors, um, foundations and endowments, which is very unusual for a first time fund and incredibly grateful for these foundations endowments who said, hey, you're a first timer. You don't look like anything we've ever done, but we believe in your vision and that you can build this because at the time, as I'm sure you've talked to lots of these founders, it was like me in a PowerPoint deck. <laughs> And like, um, and and someone who you know who who luckily luckily a lot of people believed that this could be what it is. Um, anyway, yeah. so so when I did this, I mean, when I said, okay, having been a founder, what kind of operators do I want to bring around the table? It's who are the people that you need when you're growing and scaling a company from the early days to when you're on your way to going public, etc. And so. I, I built that. So it's I started with operations people who were also in charge of revenue. Then we did sales, marketing, product, technology. Um, we also have like partnerships, people, legal, um, it, it, finance folks, et cetera, so that you as a founder um, don't have to like try to figure out like how do you even manage a cap table? How do you even manage your advisors to figure out how to keep them up to speed enough to understand when someone might have something in their background that could help accelerate you? So yes, we're a venture fund and an operator collective invest. We, you know, it's one entry on the cap table, but you have 200 plus operator LPs who are investors in your company now. But then it's not up to you, Reese, to be like, which one of these 200 operators do I need to tap right now? It's like, that's what we do with, we have very extensive like data systems and things where we're tracking and understanding what is the background that someone needs. So to the extent that my team, my core team is incredibly talented, so privileged to have them, but it's not just our team and our set of experiences and our connections. It's us plus the 200 plus operator LPs, all of their experience, credibility, network, and connections that we tap into. So you can think of it as a multiplier effect and also in a more efficient way for, um, for a founder to be able to tap into this. Yeah, that's great. I think there's a lot of uh, beautiful things I want to kind of pop off the stack there. One of them is, um, well, A, yeah, it's like, I kind of think about these, the operators, operations is, is funny because yeah, it's really, as you said, it's across so many different things. It's not just like, I feel like the, the original version of operations or the vibe was like, oh, the like person who like, I don't know, deals with the trash or the spreadsheets or I don't know, there's something like the back. And and then it's like, actually, it's so, so it's strategy, it's people, it's how to run your engineering thing. Should you choose Jira, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. And because um, just when you're when you're making a company, there are and you know this better than most people, there's a lot of crap to do. <laughs> and so it's like operations is like, how do you do all the crap in an efficient way? And how do you prioritize it? So you're doing the most important stuff. Um how much of this like operations not getting, not being part of that VC founder cycle, is that how gendered is this situation, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, that's uh, uh, that's a complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> how long do you have? But, but I mean, that 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 is part of what I wanted to do here, which was, which was a lot of times it's just the people in the background who are heads down working, yeah. who don't get any of the credit. Um, but you know, having been a founder before and, and you, and, you and, and your experience too, it's like the founders can get you, you know, zero to one, right. Can get you that initial idea. And it's, you know, it's hard to be a founder and on so many levels, but it's also in some ways I find that getting to the zero to one is, is almost the easiest because you can do it through sheer will. You can get yourself there, but then now to figure out how to make this replicable and how do you do that? But a lot of the times, but back to your question, which is how do you, it's like a lot of these people were just heads down working in the background, not the ones that were, you know, being, 
you know, put on some list of, you know, VCs and founders are always putting, I mean, VCs are mostly like putting everyone on lists and things like yeah. that. And this is great. And that's great, et cetera, et cetera. Oops, sorry. Um, and, uh, and so, but the people that were not being recognized. And then, so what I wanted to do with Operator Collective, which is, which is give them the recognition that they deserve, which is these are the people that enabled this company to become a public company, to get to 10 million in revenue, to get to 50 million in revenue, to get to hundred million in revenue, but we're largely under the radar. And, um, and I also wanted to create a new normal. So part of what we did, there have a lot of ulterior motives for, for, for creating Operator nice. Collective. Um, one is, you know, giving people more, giving under, you know, groups who otherwise don't have access to venture to have access to it and expand wealth creation. But the other thing is, is a lot of these people and are people who are not out there tweeting and creating a brand, right? One of the things that women are told all the time to do, which is like, you got to create a brand. But the thing is, is for some people like me, I'm like, I don't want to be out there creating a brand. Like, yes, I guess it can help. But like, that's just not my natural, my natural inclination. I mean, look, I used to be a patent attorney, right? You like to do, you <laughs> like to do the work. My yeah. is actually to be just like working in front of a computer or, or like, you know, working on some, you know, niche like nerdy technology piece. But, and I don't really want to be out there tweeting. And actually, if you go out to my Twitter, I'm probably the most boring Twitter person ever. Yeah. Um, and so, and so it's like, well, why don't we shift it so that it's not that like to succeed, you need to go figure out how to go to these happy hours and meet all these founders and figure out what to invest in. You have to go create a brand, have a huge Twitter following so you can know what to invest in. You don't have to do, you know, things like I, I just didn't want to do. And I, and because, and I'd rather spend time with my kids right? <laughs> um, or exercise. And so, so with operator collective, it was like, let's, make it so you don't have to do that. Let's shift the dynamic. We're going to create something that's so valuable to founders and other VCs that they will come to us and we can have the venture model come to us, which means that instead of saying, okay, go tell everyone how great you are, we tell the stories. So that it's like, okay, so we've we've done our own list, which is these are 10 operators you should know. These are 10 operators that you should want on your board. These are, you know, 10 of the best, et cetera. And so, um, and what I love about it too, is that it's working. Instead of like every person having to go recreate the wheel and do this for themselves, which by the way, oftentimes when women do that, then they get blasted for being self, too self-promoting. Mm-hmm. So there is some mm-hmm. gendered mm-hmm. aspect of it. Um, and then, uh, and I, and I do, I am generalizing a little bit, um, yeah. here. but, but what's happened with some of those lists is we've had people come inbound to be like, I read about Nancy in this thing. We would love to meet her. She has such a great, you know, background in X. I'm like, yes, she does. And so we make the intro. And in this case, she got this very awesome venture partner role on top of her day job. And that makes me really, really happy. And, um, and you know, it's, 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 it's part of what we're trying to do. So it's not just about, okay, we want to invest in, you know, invest and make money. Yes, we'd want to do that because we, but there's a larger cause, which, which is, can you shift the dynamic? Can you, can you, can you change what the new normal is? And can you get people who don't normally intersect to be able to meet each other and work together on things so that you can change, hopefully the face of the tech industry from the ground up in the early days? Cool. Yeah. I love, I think, there's um it's cool to hear yeah i love everybody's like you know secret plan or whatever and there's a um as you said for you it's like it is really powerful if we can change these um i mean there, there are bigger things about uh black swan farming and big game hunting and like how to kind of 
make uh, ownership distributions more equal. But then another part of it is kind of the the uh, the intersectionality kind of identity angle, which is like, okay, how do we get um, more women in um, LPs and funds? And how do we get more women in cap tables, women and people of color or whatever? And so it's like, these are ways to kind of make that happen. It also, it makes me think of like, and I wish I, I, I um, I'm, I'm curious to see as you guys find some kind of meme for this, like, cause there's like emotional labor is like the work that women do like in the house. So that's just like, sorry, unpaid emotional labor. Like, you know, like, you know, um, and then there's like ghost work, which is like the work that happens for all of the, um, all the people who are doing all the like uh, that are training all the AIs, you know, it's like you know with the uh, open AI or whatever. There's and so I want I have, I have there's like there's something kind of like ops work or something. It's just like background work that is happening that makes these things all occur. But because you're not shouting it from the rooftops, you're just like the people like to do their work and they're doing it, and then and then you don't get the um, uh, they, but they don't get as much credit. So I think this seems I I like the vibe. I like the energy. Let me ask one other question, which is um, uh, oh do you do you know Ste- do you know Steph Moy with um. Uh, pin power and numbers. By the way, have you heard of that? No, I don't. Okay. I, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll I send, know. I'll send her your stuff or vice versa. Yeah. It's um, she's cool because there's a, and I'm curious how you think about this. There's what she's doing is um, she was like a recent Stanford person who was making trying to get people to uh, kind of democratize investing energy, not full crypto, but democratize investing. It's like okay, you have to be in order to LP into a fund, you have to be an accredited investor or whatever, and so or in order to, to also to invest in a company, you have to be accredited. And so she they found this like investment club legal rule so that you can um with only three thousand bucks you can get in one of these investment clubs, and then those investment clubs can then um you do follow on fundings with like the top VCs into uh, various um, good orgs, and and their kind of value add. It makes me think of yours, which is, you know, people want pin on their cap table because, or a pin collective on their cap table, because if you have 20 different um, angels, well, why not just replace one of those angels with a collective, you know? And so, so tell me about that within the frame of the, and I see something similar with operator collective where it's like, oh, put an operator collective there because then you get access to this awesome kind of community. How do you think about the future of like collectives and like, you know, getting ownership on, on cap tables. How do, how do you think about that? Yeah, the, um, the, uh, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's like having, having done this and also talking to lots of our founders too, which is they say, um, being, I have all of the, I've, I've heard many of our founders say this, which is I have all of these, you know, big names on our cap table, but they're invested in so many other companies that, that it's hard to get, it's hard to, it's hard to get the help from them. And also sometimes these big names are so, um, high up there. So I intentionally, so we have CEOs and we have founders who are part of operator LP, but intentionally, like not only do we have the zoom CEO, Eric Yuan, we intentionally, this was before zoom went public that they were, that they even joined us. Um, cause everyone knows zoom now, which was, um, we also had the CFO and the CMO. So it was intentionally not just the CEO because the CEOs and the founders get all the opportunities, but the, but the next layer down don't necessarily do that. And so um, and so you could have all these great names that are great from a PR perspective. And yeah, some of them will help when you ask them, but it is very hard to just know who you need help from and who might be in a position to do so or have something in your background. And that's what our, half of our business that is Operator Collective is knowing our community and figuring out how to efficiently tap this. Um, my third hire was a data scientist. 
um, Anna, who is phenomenal. And she is has built up our systems to allow us to do this. It's not just, oh, who do I happen to remember who might actually do this? Because that's not scalable. Um, and so when I built this, it was like, how do you continue to scale this so that it's not just what's in my head or someone else's head, but we actually track um, like how much have we tapped each person? What kind of requests have we? And then we also, we do these um, these collab reports that we give to our founders and we review with them. Here's all the things that we've done. Help us understand what's the most value add for you. What are the kind of things that we can do? So it's not just, oh, we'll just make an intro when you ask us to. And so, um, and so that's, that's, that is part of, um, you know, that, that is, that is part of it. Um, I don't think I actually answered the question. No, 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 you did. No, you definitely did. No, it's like, it's like, and what you're doing is, yeah, you're doing in order to have a community like that in order to, it's easy when it's like, okay, blah, 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 Reese is on your cap table. And I just kind of look through my brain and I'm like, okay, who should you chat with? Maybe this person or whatever, you know, and like, that's fine, but then it doesn't scale. And so if you have, um, you know, these, these 200, like a bunch of different operators, if you have, you know, 200 operator LPs and all this stuff, then it's like, okay, cool. How do you, how do you know that you're kind of connecting people in the network best and kind of um, linking folks up? And I think it's really smart to do just, yeah, it's a weird, just like, kind of like power law thing where you have. Yeah. All of the attention is on the random founders and VCs with these big names. Oh, I have this random person. Okay, cool. Do they help? No, they have like a lot of their plate. But like the people who are just even one click down, even the CFO or CMO or whatever it might be, they are can be super, super helpful. And they have like 10x less. They're just as helpful and they have 10x less kind of um, yeah. or 10x more time or whatever. Well, and the other thing is when I first started this, I thought, oh, it's people who have been there, done that, can help you scale up your company. But yes, they do that. Or like they can help you, like someone had just said, my, like I, somebody wants to start a partnerships um, um, channel because it just works really well for the company. So I introduced them to two of our folks, two of our LPs who run partnerships. And I got this email from him, this text from him. And he's like, oh my God, like a half hour with her just saved me six months worth of time. Um, she said X, Y, and Z to do this. Duh. He's like face plant. It's so obvious when someone said it, but I'm like, of course you wouldn't know this. You have 10 million things to do. And when someone who's done this for 25 years can tell you, Hey, actually, this is how you do it because this is the way that incentives are aligned and people are paid. So if you do this, it's going to unlock it as opposed to what you're trying to do right now. So that I, I, I knew, and I thought that it was, but the other two things that I didn't quite appreciate quite as much was that second, because we're not just the CEOs. And because we focused on making sure we have active operators now, not just a bunch of retired operators, they are the buyers of all these products mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we invest primarily in enterprise and B2B. And so when you look at, you know, the companies that are found that our operators represent, they're the ones that everyone wants to sell to. Um, and so, which is great because that's also how we run our diligence, which is, Hey, is this a problem that you're facing? Would you buy this? Can you give them feedback? Can you give us feedback? And in many cases, they've actually ended up in signed contracts. And then the third thing is that active operators now who are tied into all the current talent networks now of the alumni and others who are moving around. When you worked somewhere 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or you're the CEO, 
you're not as tied into that as the people who are literally making the buying decisions, who are hiring the people, who are like working working with the team, who are the VPs or the CTOs who know which directors on their teams are going to be the next VP of sales somewhere. And so with those three things, um, even though I really only knew the first one going in, I was like, wow, this is even more like compelling than, than I thought it was going to be. And so I was kind of happily surprised. And then the, the, the other thing that I'll mention which is, um, as you said, it's like a lot of these people are under the radar. They're not noticed. And if you look at their LinkedIn, most of our operators don't have like these splashy LinkedIn of like, I did this and I did this. It literally from a lot of them will just say their job and the year. And so, um, so we work with them to, to tease out. I'm like, no, no, you actually grew this company from five people, right. To, to 300 people and from a million in revenue to over 300 million. And so we capture all of that in our proprietary databases. So we know exactly who, and, and we, and we, and we pull this information out of them. So we know exactly who has this background to be able mm-hmm. to match with this founder who was doing, you know, who is facing this problem there or can help them through. Um, so there's things like that, that it's just, that, I mean, same thing, like my LinkedIn for many years, probably still as I haven't updated it in a while. It's like, you're not out there. You're not focused on trying to create a brand Chilling. around yourself. Yeah. You're just working your ass off, probably trying yeah. to, you know, do a great job at your job and anything that's left goes to your friends and, you know, to your family. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. It's a, it's a cool, um, yeah, it makes me think of, yeah, you just, just negative and positive selection where it's like, okay, you can just see game. Theoretically, there's all these people who are around the people who are like sh- shouting from the rooftops probably don't go to those people. Like who are the people who are doing the work who are not shouting? And it might be operators. It also might be the other version of this is like the like random, super nerdy um, engineer type. Who's like, you oh, know, you're, you're, you're you, just you, like, you, oh, you're not shouting. Sort of, yeah. It's like operators, you know, it's also like introverts. It's also a lot of what we say is like, and and that's why we were never supposed, we're never intentionally a hundred percent women. Right. It's not saying that you have to be an introvert or a woman. (laughs) I'm not saying that, but it's like the theory applies, which is the people who aren't out there beating their chest saying, look at me, look at me. And also it means you have a broader pool of people to reach as opposed to the same group of usual suspects again and again. And then the other thing that we did which was really unusual at the time. And people thought I was crazy. They're like, how are you possibly going to manage that? Um, But I'd managed a lot of communities before and I'm an operator, so I'm good at scaling things. Is that instead of saying most VC funds um, would give the opportunity to like a couple of their CEOs who had exited and say, okay, the minimum is $250,000. $250,000 is a lot of money to invest, period. And if you're a founder who's had a big liquidity event, okay, you can manage that. But a lot of operators, when you're thinking about it, you're just making a good living. You're from a lot of us, you might live in the Bay Area, you have a mortgage, you're trying to save up for your kids. It's like $250,000 is way too much money to put in. So we actually dropped it and we created a sliding scale based on ability to pay and background and what kind of backgrounds and we did we want. And it wasn't focused just on like gender or race or anything like that. It was basically what kind of backgrounds were underrepresented, including skill sets. And the smallest investment investment we took was $10,000 drawn down over three years. And so this is the way that you can change the system. So it's not just, okay, you have to, you know, you have to put in $250,000 if you want to do this, or you have to angel invest in the theory behind angel investing. You need to do at least 50 companies for one to hit. Most of us don't have that time or the money to be able to do it. And if you're going to invest in venture, cause it is a very risky, you know, asset class is, um, is to have a portfolio because some will fail. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like you want to increasing the kind of owner, the like, 
yeah, the people who can access the thing, it's like, oh, the founder VC loop, and then it's a winner's, you know, rich get richer, you know, success to the successful kind of energy versus a, hey, if there is people who are doing the good work and who did get, you know, early employee shares or whatever, but they don't have all the money, then it's like, okay, how yeah, do we kind exactly. of increase that access to them? Um, the other thing that you said there that I think is smart is it makes me, it's, it, all the vibes just feel kind of YCE to me in the sense that's like, hey, you have a bunch of people in the yeah, YC is obviously it's like whatever a tech product with the community or whatever where it's like you have a all the YC companies buy from all the other random YC companies you know um, and that's helpful it's like you have a um, gusto is used by you know whatever the YC crew and so it's like for you guys it makes sense that those and then the talent networks of course too where it's like okay random people who are exiting Stripe then go and like start YC companies or join the other way and so it's like a similar like operator collective energy where you have the flows of customers you need customer flows to be um that that are kind of naturally and then and then also the alumni kind of talent flows that are kind of naturally flowing yeah the alumni so that- talent flows which is hey we're looking for someone's looking for a great designer or someone's looking for a new cto and we go within our network and then um and uh uh and then the other thing is because they're active operators who are in the trenches enough um and not just so high up is that um uh, well, some of them are, but 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 there's there's an assortment intentionally, which is uh, but because of the fact that they're active, is that fifty over fifty percent of our deal flow comes from our from our LPs. Um, so it's hey, my best engineer just left and she just started this company. Do you want to talk to her? Yes, mm-hmm. of course we do. <laughs> um, uh, or hey, you know, so and so just left to join this early stage startup, or we just started to use this product, and um, and it's really intriguing. And do you guys want to dig into it? So it's it's great because there's only so much ground that you know me and my you know and the, the core team can cover. But if you can then distribute it around these really amazing people that are 200, then it's just it it just creates that scale and that multiplier effect. Yeah. That's great. Um, so in the final kind of 10 minutes uh, here, uh, Malin, I want to kind of, I guess, do a couple random things. Um, the first is, actually, yeah, I want to ask this question. How has operations changed in the last decade and how will it change in the next decade? So, um, and I guess it depends on how you define operations, right? Yeah. When I when I say operations, I, I define it as basically building, growing, scaling up a company. So it can be, you know, even from, you know, being five people, right, and trying to figure out how to get the operations to run. So I think that there is, so when we first started Operator Collective, um, we had to define what an operator was, and operators were not really on the radar. Now there's, um, which I think is great, is there's lots of folks who are trying to bring operators into the the venture ecosystem in recognition that, um you can, you know, as I said earlier, you can muscle an idea off the ground, but if you can't get a repeatable motion down, whether it's the technology and supporting or the sales motion, you know, founder-led sales can be very effective to a point. Um, and then you can hire like a couple of people, but if you can't get that repeatable motion and you can't build a truly, um, you know, enduring large company. And so I think that there is a, there is more recognition now that the, the, the importance of of um of making sure you have a strong operation and strong foundation and um and so you are seeing more coos right there weren't as many coos especially in the in the in the tech mm-hmm. world and the coo role by the way differs from from company to company but like um uh claire hughes johnson who is yeah. was the coo of stripe you know she's incredible i'm fortunate that she's been an lp and an advisor from the very early days of of operator collective and actually she's coming out with a book you should have her on the podcast um yeah scaling, scaling people, people. Yeah, yes yeah. i should i should yeah. i should 
Yeah, I read it. It's um, it's great. It's um, the official okay, copy's so, coming out soon. But but like how what what Claire like what Claire Tana describes her COO role at Stripe, and she joined you know very early at Stripe was like when something needed to be done, she would go build out that function, right, and understand what needs to be done, and then figure out who to hire. Right. And that's also what you do as a CEO, because CEO, a lot of these things you're doing for the first time, but you need to learn enough about what it is to figure out what you need to hire for. Because it also like, what is my sales motion? Is it a PLG motion? Right. Is it a channel motion? Is it a heavy enterprise sale? Is it a SMB? Because until you know that, and lots of times it takes the CEO or the, the Claire's of the world to like figure out like, what is that initial niche that we're going into so that you can figure out who to hire, who has the skill set, who then can build a team that can scale from that um, is incredibly important. And so so I think there's um, there's recognition. A lot of our, we do that with our CEOs, which is, okay, you need to build out this function. This is what we think is a PLG. Yours is, we're going to convert to, uh, you know, we're going to convert over to that. So here's two or three experts who have done this before, and it will help you understand um, better than I can, right? Because I'm actually not a PLG expert. Um, how you do that, and along the way, they may be able to refer you to people who um, may be great candidates. And so, I think there is a lot of recognition now, which I think is great. Um, and um, and um, that uh, it, it, it's the critical third leg, right, of the of the stool. Yeah, yeah. With the other two legs being kind of the the is it like the other two are the other two legs here the founder and VC or the other what are the other two legs? Are they like product Actually, and engineering? In terms of company building, company, I mean, yes, yeah. there's, you know, there's there's customers and all that, but the, the three groups and the one that was missing, right? It was really around VCs and founders. When you look at all the messaging yeah. and everything and all the events and all the things around the venture world, it was VCs and founders, which are important because you wouldn't have venture-backed startups without VCs and founders. Yeah. But the critical yeah, the third, third leg piece, is, yeah. Yeah, the third piece is you need operators, people who can actually build and scale and grow these companies with you to be extensions and execute on that vision that's being set. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I like it. And I think that, yeah, that I always love that frame um, of just, yeah, you, in order to, the whole thing of growing a company is learning the new things you need to do doing them, you know, prioritizing and them doing them and then learning that function, as you're saying. And then you're like, okay, great. Now I know what this function is. Now I need to hire somebody for it. You know, yeah, who, um, who can do it better, right? Who can now who scale can it, it out? Um, yeah, yeah. Yes. So repeating that process over and over again is like, has been, is now more understood and will hopefully be, uh, continue to be understood in the next decade. Um, I want to ask, uh, what advice do you have for ambitious young people? Um, so... So some so so I spent a lot of my life feeling like an outsider. Um, I had you know immigrant parents who still don't really speak much English and always felt like an outsider. For many parts of my time, uh, from from many, uh, I'm I'm five feet four now, but but for much of my life, I was also really really short, and I was one of these introverts and like just just didn't really ever feel like I fit in, and and even when I. Um, became chief IP counsel, chief patent counsel at Cisco, I was one of the few who didn't have a technical degree. I have a high technical aptitude, but I was one of the few that didn't have an, you know, an engineering or computer science degree. So, and then also, um, you know, then having started the venture fund, not having been in a traditional venture background. And so for a long time, it took me a long time to realize that actually being an outsider is good. Right. And feeling like you're you don't know everything is actually really good. And so hang on to that because it allows you to approach things in a way that um, 
and to ask questions that other people might not ask because they just assume, well, it's, it's always done that way because you can't change it. And so even the way I started Operator Collective, I do all kinds of things, um, you know, all within the, 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 the legal regulations of a venture fund, but it's not run like any other venture fund. So as an outs- um, so for the, for the young people, I would say, even if you feel like you don't have the background, like look at what you do have and look at what you do know and, um, and embrace the fact that, that um, the things that you don't know or that you're, you know, you're not so jaded or you're not so set in, in certain ways will allow you to come up with something that's even more, more innovative. And then along those lines, though, you know, when I started Operator Collective, people said, a lot of people gave me a lot of great advice. And a lot of people also said like, oh, you're never going to be able to do this if you do X. You're never going to be able to do this if you do this. And, and they all said with love, right? Because they're trying to help. And so some advice that you might get from people is like, oh, just ignore the naysayers. Like, just go do what you think is right. But the fact is actually you shouldn't ignore them. What you should do is hear what they're saying. The fact that they're taking the time to give you the feedback and because they're, they have that view, that is probably what someone else would think. So figure out a way to bolster what the perceived weakness is and use your outsider perspective maybe to, um, to, to figure out how to do that as, um, and, and turn it into a strength. So for instance, I had not had a long history of venture investing. And so I knew that. And, um, and so people said, well, no one, you're never going to be able to raise more than $5 million, whatever. I said, you know what? And I don't think I know everything about venture investing. I think the model is sound because I will be able to get the feedback from the people who are the buyers now. But I also brought in two, I'm super fortunate to have two of the most amazing advisors who are a part of our investment advisory committee. And it's Dan Scheinman and Magdalena Yaseel. Dan Scheinman is a first investor in Zoom and Arista. And I've known him for a long time. And he also ran Corp Dev at Cisco. So it's been, you know, these are the two of the most successful enterprise investors in the world. And Magdalena Yaseel, let me just ask you this. Have you heard of her before? No, I have not. Yeah. And hence, yes, which is, and she was the first investor in Salesforce. She Mm. um, invested when nobody else would invest. She put in 500K of her own money. Her own venture fund turned it down like two or three times. No one would invest in it. It was the same thing with, with Dan Scheinman investing in Zoom. No one would, no one would, no one would, um, no one would fund, Eric, because it was like, what, another video thing, whatever. And he was a solo founder. He was an immigrant, et cetera. Anyway, so, so to, to the credit, you know, to the, to the thing is like, well, you don't have a long track record. I'm like, okay, I know that. And I'm not going to say, oh yeah, but I'll just pick really well. It's like, you know what, if I can bring people in like Dan and Magdalena, I'm going to learn a ton and we're going to be better off. So use any of those naysayers and those comments, not by ignoring them, but saying, okay, what can I do? Because it's a good point. Um, and, it, and I didn't bring them in just because, oh, I need eye candy, right? It's because, no, they're going to teach me things. And so so those are just a couple of things yeah. that are um, that that I've learned along the way that have helped me sort of be comfortable with the fact that it's good to be an outsider. And second, like, yeah, I don't know everything. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love both of those. And I think, I think it's like the feedback is a gift one is like, um, but the feedback is a gift, but also feedback is a, it's a signal from the environment. And it's kind of like a, it's a it's it's a, a a thing that you will hear often, you know, or especially once you hear it a couple of times, you're like, okay, cool, yeah, this is a thing that people will think, which is probably true, and then so boom, then you can kind of create something internally that kind of answers it in your own way. Um, let's do three quick um, overrated and underrated uh, here, so you just kind of answer overrated, underrated, and then a little fifteen yeah. second like one sentence on why. Um, do you think that technology as a value creation engine is overrated or underrated? Hmm. 
Um, so I think technology is a uh, is a given. You need to have the technology, but remember, it's it's technology in itself is not going to be the, is, is not going to be the winner. I mean, the, the the classic example of you know Betamax was better technology than VHS. So, no. so I think it's a fundamental. It needs to be there, um, but but it is not the the sole, the sole driver, and it's not a sure success. Yeah, you need that's that a long way of saying. I guess it. Does that mean it's overrated? Overrated, overrated. <laughs> it's overrated because because you're like, it's a critical, it's a critical necessary piece, but it's not. It's not in and of itself going to create a winner. Exactly. Yep, that makes sense. You need the uh, product and the distribution. You need the technology and the execution. Um, what yeah. about the diversity problem in VC? Is that overrated or underrated? Um, I think it's underrated. The, um, you know, I love the fact that in the past five plus years with like the work that all and others have done have shown a spotlight on the problem. But then what you also saw was, okay, so a lot of venture funds ended up bringing, um, bringing more diversity into their partnership. But then you're also seeing three years later that those people have left. Um, and it's, it's a hard model bringing in the venture model is a very hard model, right? You have partners and things. So I, 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 I don't, I'm not criticizing that anyone, um, you know, it, it's hard, it's a hard model to make work. And so we need to do a lot more work in that area because you're seeing people who have come in and come out. So there's well-meaning intentions, but execution is hard. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes me think of, um, you know, just kind of like achievement gap stuff with uh, high schoolers and in college. And you're like, okay, um, we're trying to get more, you know, low income and kind of uh, traditionally marginalized groups into college. Great. Let's kind of pump them through these no excuses schools. Oh, damn. When they got to college, they kind of dropped out. So how do we think about that? And so it's like, there's a whole funnel there of how do we, how do we make a more um, overall uh, kind of diverse ecosystem? So, so that makes sense. Well, um, 100%. Even with all the tech companies, right, with the hiring, um, with um, with others, which is like, it was like the focus was get in diverse candidates and hire them. Yeah. But it's like, were they thriving? It's this exact same thing that you just said. It's like, okay, now you've got them in. You can't just throw them in and say, okay, now you're going to succeed. It's like, okay, they come in, they look different than everyone else. It's hard to be the only and the other and the different. And so, how do you how do you make sure that they succeed? Um, that's a whole other set of problems. Yeah, I love that diversity. Yeah, and that's why I love DIB, the diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Diversity is who's in the room, you know, and then belonging is like, do they feel like they belong there? So um, great. Well, Madeline, thank you, or Madeline, thank you for coming on today. It's just cool to hear what you're doing with Operator Collective. You know, I, I would say, you know, after this, I, I feel bullish. You know, I'm excited by what you all are doing, both for, um, in terms of just like, yeah, operators doing things, I always just get excited by that. Like, I just love when people are doing the work. So thank you for doing the work. Um, for listeners, if you want to check out Malin online, um, she's at Twitter at M-A-L-L-U-N. Um, that's Malin. And then also if you go to operate, if you're a... Yeah, if you're a founder that's looking to um, chat with awesome, uh, looking to build, grow, and scale your org, um, and wants that you know 200 LPs that have this uh, experience already doing that, go to operatorcollective.com um, and send them an email. Anything else you want to say, uh, Malin, for our listeners today? Um, yeah, would love to hear from you. If you're an operator or if you're a founder, please reach out via you know via um, via the website, via Twitter, et cetera, except I just had already scared you guys off by saying I'm the most boring Twitter person. Um, but reach out anyway. would love to hear from you. LinkedIn is also another great way. And Reese, thank you so much for doing the show and for having me. I, I really appreciate it. It's been so much fun talking to you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah, no, I, I, I like learning and I learned a lot, which is good. Um, thank you, everybody, and goodbye.
Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Landmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thanks, and see you here for the next episode. Bye.